Well, we're finished with the book of Ruth. And uh, for the next few weeks, it's going to be potluck or preacher's potluck. I don't know. What do we want to call it? <laughs> Whatever the Lord lays on my heart until we figure out where we're going next. Uh, I kind of have an idea, but I don't want to say because I'm not sure. But uh, what I like to do in the meantime is uh, for my own personal quiet study time with the Lord, uh, which, yes, I do. Uh, I want to make sure I set a good example uh, for the flock. Uh, the first thing I do when I get here in the mornings uh, is have my own time with the Lord in prayer and scripture reading and study. Uh, that's separate from sermon prep and all that kind of stuff. So uh, just to share some things uh, that uh, I've been learning or that the Lord's put on my heart, uh, things that I find very interesting and I hope uh, will be uh, helpful uh, to you as well. Uh, I think that uh, have you ever wanted to I was thinking about this. Have you ever wanted to uh, trade places with someone? Uh, you know, I know that uh, sometimes I know I do. I've watched I love tennis. That's my favorite sport. And, you know, I'm watching Rafael Nadal or, you know, some of these guys. And I think, wow, I wish I could be in their shoes, you know, playing tennis and getting paid for it. That'd be really cool. And by the way, I did play with Nate when he was home and I beat him down hard. It was good. I really, I'm old, but I'm still moved like a cat out there. On the, a big cat, uh, the big cats. I love tennis. Uh, or I'm going to make a confession. So you're going to get nervous. My wife gets really nervous uh, when I say this, but uh, I uh, will make a confession that when I was growing up, uh, I kind of always wished I could be Steve McQueen. He was, I just, did you ever, wasn't he in that movie, The Great Escape, right? When they escaped on the train. And then he was in Westerns and then he played like really bad cops. And I was like, man, that would be awesome to be Steve McQueen. You know, our culture uh, picks up on that uh, because we have all kinds of movies and stories and literature of people trading places, don't we? There's the famous English novel, The Prince and the Pauper. Remember that story, how they trade places because they look so much alike. And uh, or if you remember either the newer version or the original version of Freaky Friday, do you remember that uh, Disney film? What didn't a mother and a daughter change places? Right. Uh, uh, so it's something that we uh, long for, just I think as part of our uh, being human. Uh, but we're going to look at a story today of two people who traded places uh, in the book of Joshua, a woman named Rahab and a man named Achan. Uh, and this is what's interesting about studying the scriptures. Uh, if we slow down and we take our time, especially with Old Testament uh, narrative, is, is that's what we call it. Uh, it's longer. You know, you read the Gospels or the New Testament or particularly the Gospels. The stories are short and concise. And you need to do a little bit of reading before the story and after the story, maybe to, you know, keep it in context. But when you read the Old Testament, sometimes you have to read big chunks to pick up on the connections. Uh, that's just how it's written that way. Uh, and our story of Rahab and Achan is one of those incidences because uh, you're talking about a big chunk of scripture. Uh, the first seven chapters of the book of Joshua. Uh, if you don't have an outline uh, and you want one, can you raise your hand? I know there's probably some left out there. Ushers uh, sure could come in. Yeah, there's some folks in here. 
uh, that need that. I know it's quite lengthy, but we're going to move pretty fast, so no worries. Uh, I've turned over a new leaf. Remember, last week we just flew. So hopefully your pencils and your pens are all set to go. Just hold your hands up. They've got some outlines for you. So we want to think uh, as we move through the text this morning, we're not going to read all seven chapters. Don't panic. Uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, but you think about the book of Joshua Uh, Perhaps the key word in the book of Joshua is the word conquest, uh, because that's what's happening. Uh, Even in chapter one, when we first start that we read earlier today, uh, we see what the God is exhorting Joshua to be courageous, uh, to lead Israel across the Jordan River to victory into the promised land. The theme is conquest. And who was uh, Joshua's mentor? It was Moses. Uh, Joshua was taking Moses' place. Joshua came out of that slavery in Egypt. He was part of that 40-year desert wandering. And now he was the man that was going to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. And if you, we don't have time, but look at the parameters of the boundaries of the promised land there in chapter 1. It's a lot bigger than the state of Israel today, which is the size of New Jersey. Uh, it's huge. I can't even say that word anymore without, you know, huge. Uh, it's so funny, our culture in words, you know, you can't. Anyway, yeah. So it's a big area. Uh, and so Joshua is the man uh, chosen. So the book is really starting out in an exciting way. Conquest, driving out enemies. There's probably going to be some pretty good stuff in here. Let's pay attention. You know, the writer is trying to get our attention. So they start out in chapter one. Then all of a sudden in chapter two, we put the brakes on already. And this is what's really interesting. And I want to answer these. I forgot about these two questions. I wanted us to think about these questions first. Uh, A couple of things I came across uh, that I thought as we move to this material this morning, I want you to be thinking about these two questions or these two statements because we're going to come back to them in our conclusion. All fruitful time in the word of God leaves us with something to believe And something to obey. Do you agree with that Uh, or not? Every time you open your Bible, it doesn't matter if it's in the book of Genesis or the book of the Revelation or something in between. You should always be looking for something that God is asking you to believe and something that God is asking you to obey. So even as we move through these chapters in Joshua, we want to be sensitive to these two questions. In fact, one one author said, uh, Something to believe and something to obey. These are the two legs of walking with God. I thought that was a very interesting way to put it. Then secondly, here's a little bit of food for thought from one of the authors that I was using. He said, biblical narratives like the Old Testament force us to do something with God for better or for worse. They leave us or they they leave us to believe or disbelieve, to obey or disobey. They draw us to the Lord or repel us. Either way. We're forced to think, feel, say, and do something in relation to God. What he's saying is every time you open your Bible, you're making a choice to either draw near to God or kind of move away from God. Uh, To believe what you're reading and studying or to not believe it. But he's saying there's no middle ground. It's always one way or the other. So even this morning as we move through this material in Joshua, we want to be looking for what is it that God is asking me to think, feel, say, and do In my relationship with him. So we'll come back. Uh, And if you can answer these questions as we're moving through, you might just want to jot 
down your notes. So this exciting story of conquest, chapter one, already we're in chapter two and it's slowing down. They're hitting the brakes on this. I'm just kind of I don't even know how many chapters are in Joshua. I'm going to check. Uh, what is it? Twenty three. Yeah. Twenty three chapters, twenty four chapters. But in chapter two, they put the brakes on the conquest already because we're introduced to this woman named Rahab and not just any woman, but she's a prostitute or if you have a King James, she's a harlot. Uh, I think harlot is even more descriptive. So already and it's kind of weird. It's kind of odd. You're starting the story of the conquest of the promised land by the nation of Israel. Now we're going to put the brakes on to learn about this prostitute, Canaanite woman named Rahab. And when we're in the Old Testament, something really important to do if you're ever reading or studying Old Testament books is really take note of all the details, especially when people are introduced. Because often in the Old Testament, God will teach us through the beliefs and actions of the characters that are on the page. So now we have this Rahab and we're told a lot about her, aren't we? We're told about her family. We're told that she lives on the city wall. In fact, one of the windows of her home is on the outside of the wall, uh, that she is a prostitute by trade, uh, that she's a Canaanite woman. Uh, It mentions her family twice. It mentions that she has quite a few possessions of uh, donkeys, sheep and cattle. It just gives us a lot of details about her. So, number one, this must be an important person. And number two, how odd that we stop the story of the conquest in the second chapter. What could be happening? Look at Joshua 2. It says in verse 1, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they stayed there. Then someone told the king that the spies were there, and they sent some men to her house and said, Where are the men, the sons of Israel, that have come to search out the land? Uh, the king uh, wanted to know, said, Bring the men who have come to stay with you, uh, and they've come to search out all of our land. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And so when it was came time to shut up the gate at dark, uh, the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly because you might overtake them. Wink, wink. But she had that's not there in the text. Wink, wink. That's implied. Uh, But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, we don't have time to answer the question, how can this be a godly woman uh, who she turns out to be because she accepts the one true God and yet she's lying? Uh, And, of course, we know God never endorses lying, right? I think one thing that shows us is that all people, all of us are a mixture of good and bad, aren't we? Uh, It's just being honest about what she did. And who knows if this is early on in her salvation. Maybe that's just something that she did before she was growing in her walk with God. Who knows? But it's not condoning the lying. So verse eight, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said, I know that the Lord has given the land to you and the terror of you has fallen on us all. And the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how that's an important word. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. 
And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so then she goes on to say, please swear to me, if I protect you, will you promise me that when you return with your troops, that you won't destroy me and my family? And so they told her, very well. If you keep your end of the bargain and you don't rat us out, you want to hang this scarlet cord from your window so that we know when we come to take your city uh, that you and your family will live. So, wow, how strange. The story of the great conquest of the promised land is interrupted right at the beginning with this story of this Canaanite prostitute. So in chapters three through five, what's going on? The Israelites are preparing to attack Jericho, which is Rahab's city. And you see this on your outlines. Chapter six, we see the miraculous capture of Jericho. It happened just like God said. Remember, they had to march around the city how many times? Seven. Yeah. And you think that's weird. And Jericho was up on a hill. It's kind of strange. That's no way to attack a city. God was just trying to teach the Israelites to depend on him and to trust in him and to do it his way and that he would provide. So now. Moving on to chapter seven. So Jericho has been taken. The conquest is going well, but all of a sudden we hit the brakes again because the the writer introduces another character. It's interesting. Only two new faces are introduced in the conquest story in the first seven chapters of Joshua. This Canaanite prostitute named Rahab and now this Israelite man named Achan appears on the scene. If you're familiar with this story in Joshua chapter seven, look at verse one. Not a good guy, but he is part of Israel. But the sons of Israel uh, acted unfaithfully. I'm in chapter seven, verse one, in regard to the things under the ban for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah. That's important too. the most important tribe, probably took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So they go out to battle. They lose. They're like, what in the world is going on? And God tells Joshua, I told you to utterly destroy every single item in the city. I don't want you to be contaminated by that stuff or fall in love with luxury and wealth and all this. And so this man takes some things and he hides it in his tent. So Israel loses the battle. Now God tells Joshua to find out who this person is and deal with it. And then Achan and his family end up being stoned and burned to death per God's orders. Uh, And there's a whole lesson there. Of course, one of the applications is not that we stone and burn people that we think are disobeying. We do not do that. Uh, We're not ISIS. Uh, We're not living under the Old Testament uh, covenant or anything like that. But what we want to do is we want to stop and think for a moment uh, that why are we learning about this man named Achan and this woman named Rahab? In the midst of the conquest and the conquering of this city of Jericho. And you look at your outlines, you see the phrase cattle, cattle, donkeys and sheep are mentioned a couple times. Mentioned with the destruction of Achan and with the destruction of the city of Jericho. So we ask ourselves, is perhaps 
the writer of Joshua making an intentional comparison between the destruction of Jericho and the destruction of Achan. Those are the things we want to look for because the phrases are repeated identically. And we think, wow, what is going on here? And as you move through this story, we start to think, well, maybe we should be comparing also Rahab to Achan. If the text has only introduced these two new characters, because we see the destruction of his family emphasized. But what is emphasized with Rahab and her family? Not their destruction, but their deliverance. So we see one woman and her family delivered and one man and his family destroyed. And what is happening? We think, I think, that there is a purposeful connection and comparison being done between Rahab and Achan. And we say, well, why would God be wanting us to compare and look at these two people? Because I believe that Achan is meant to appear as the exact opposite of Rahab. And we'll see why in a moment. In fact... As we read Old Testament stories, we want to read broadly so that we can pick up these connections. It is interesting because you have Rahab introduced in chapter 2 and you have Achan introduced in chapter 7. But what happens in between Rahab and Achan? You have the destruction of Jericho. You've got a Jericho sandwich with Rahab and Achan bread. Oh, no. That's purposely done. I know it's getting close to lunch. That's where my head's going. But that's what God is doing here. And if we study the scriptures clearly, we can pick up on this. Their stories form bookends around the chapters that deal with the fall of Jericho. So we go, oh, so if these two characters are bookends, we want to find out all we can about their lives and compare what is happening here in the text. There's an intentional contrast between the details of their lives. There's a lot here. You see that chart on your page? You can pretty much just fill in the opposite on the blank side for Rahab as you see on the other side for Achan. Look at the comparisons. And this just is this isn't even all. This is just what I came up with. If you study through the text, I'm sure you would find more contrast and more comparisons. I mean, obviously, Achan was a man. Rahab was a woman. Interesting that Achan was a Hebrew from the tribe of Judah, considered the best tribe. And where was Rahab from? She was a Canaanite, one of the pagan tribes, perhaps considered one of the worst pagan tribes of people. Achan is respectable. He's part of the nation of Israel. What was Rahab? She was very disrespectable, wasn't she? Or unrespectable. She was a prostitute by trade and from a pagan country. Achan should have prospered, but he ended up dying. Whereas Rahab, she should have been destroyed in the city of Jericho. But for some reason, she was allowed to live and ended up prospering. Israel, uh, Achan's Israel, his nation prospers. Her nation is destroyed. Achan hides something from God, didn't he? What did he hide from God? He hid the robe and some other treasures from God in his tent. Didn't Rahab hide something too? She hid the spies. He hid his things under the ground in his tent. She hid the spies up on the roof under some flax. Achan had no fear of the God of Israel. 
But we already read in Joshua chapter 2 that Ruth or Rahab had a fear for the God of Israel. She had great faith, whereas a man who came from the nation of Israel, he didn't have faith. Interesting that Achan had seen God's works. He had been part of the desert wanderings. He probably even came out of the slavery in Israel and was part of the crossing of the Red Sea. He had seen God in action, and yet he still what? Disobeyed. In, in our text in Joshua chapter 2, it said several times what? When Rahab was talking, she simply said, we have heard about your God. So Rahab merely heard of what God had done, and she believed. Achan had seen what the things that God had done, and yet he still disobeyed. His tent is burned. Her city is burned. He loses his cattle, sheep and donkeys. Uh, she loses the same or all those things in Jericho are destroyed. What's interesting to me is Achan ends up dying, which was the sentence upon the Canaanites. And yet Rahab, the Canaanite, was what? Treated as an Israelite and lived. There's a, just a tremendous amount of exciting comparisons and contrastings that we might never think to make if we didn't slow down and really look at this passage of these seven chapters together. So, in essence, here's what's happening. As we compare Rahab to Achan, we realize what? That they have traded places. Everything that really God intended to bring to Achan because he was an Israelite ended up coming to Rahab. He died. She lived. They, in essence, trade places. In fact, we know something about Rahab. We saw Rahab last week, didn't we? In the story of Ruth, because they're part of the same family. Rahab even becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, a Canaanite prostitute. In Jesus's family tree. Very interesting. So the destruction of Achan and his family and all their possessions are meant to parallel the destruction of Jericho and that city coming down. Notice, though, I believe the writer of this book wants us to see that there is one primary major difference between Rahab and Achan. The most major contrast of all. And it's this. It is their attitude toward God. Very fascinating. There was a great difference between the attitude that Rahab took toward God and the attitude that Achan took toward God. Because what did Rahab think about God? Rahab takes God seriously. These spies show up. She says, oh, I've heard about you. I've heard about your God. I believe it. I want to help you. And then when you come and destroy my city, please take me into your country because I, too, believe by faith that your God is the one true God. She takes things very seriously. And how does Achan treat God? God had told them, we will give, I will give you victory. I will take care of your enemies if you obey my commands. And Achan just kind of shrugs his shoulders, doesn't he? And he just acts as if God doesn't even exist. God's given me these commands. He's told me to obey and to do this. But eh, who cares? 
This stuff looks good and I'm sure it's worth a lot of money. I'm going to take it. I'm going to hide it. And no one's going to be any the wiser. He thought that he could blatantly disobey God and not suffer any consequences. Rahab knew that she had to obey God and turn to God in order to escape the consequences of destruction. Interesting. Interesting. The man who should have known far better because he lived in the nation of light chose the path of darkness. Isn't that interesting? There's a a side note we could make, but we don't have time. Just because I'm associated with the light doesn't mean I'm not in the darkness. Being affiliated or associated with the nation of Israel or other religious organizations doesn't make me a child of the kingdom. That's kind of a downer, huh? You're hoping for something a little more uplifting. Well, I'll come at the end. Okay. Just chew on the downer. We'll give you an upper before you leave. Okay. So the stories of Rahab and Achan, and this is fascinating to me. The stories of Rahab and Achan bracket the destruction of Jericho. Note the irony. The book of Joshua begins with the conquest and annihilation of the Canaanites by the Israelites. But the first two people we meet in the story are what? Exceptions to the rule. God is saying something here. He begins this great story of the conquest of the promised land. And at the very beginning, he hits the brakes to put in an exception. Go in and destroy all the pagan, unbelieving Canaanites and take the city. But first, you're going to rescue this one person out of it. You're like, whoa, hit the brakes. And then not only that, we see a negative exception to the rule. You see, an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, the highest ranking group in the nation of Israel, probably. And he chooses to disobey, even though he had all the benefits, all the privileges of one in the nation of Israel. So we see the Canaanite Rahab lives and the Israelite Achan dies. So we know from the text that there's more to the conquest than just the destruction of the Canaanites. Well, what else is there? We see some critical issues. First of all, we see issues of individual faith and obedience. Individual faith and obedience, as well as individual lack of faith and disobedience. You know, that's why God's word is always personal. Have you ever noticed that in the scriptures? God is always pursuing individuals. That's why when we open our scriptures or we're reading or you're hearing uh, a really good sermon or you're hearing my sermon or uh, and you think, wow, I've had some of you say to me before. and I've said the same thing to preachers. Uh, I couldn't even look at you because I thought you were talking about me. You know, why did you expose our private conversation? No, it's the word. It just feels personal. Why? Because God is a God of personal individual relationships. He personally pursues Rahab and brings her into salvation. Jesus said, no one can come into the father unless I draw him. And if you are part of the family of God, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, it is because God in his divine eternal providence has willed that you personally, individually have been brought by his spirit into the kingdom of God. And that's not to give us a big head. That's just to show us the relational Nature of the God that we serve, because sometimes we become very skilled at grouping 
our relationship with God or generalizing our relationship with God. And we forget that our walk with God should be a very personal, individual relationship of love, affection, loyalty, service. And he individually pursues Achan in a negative way. Look at chapter seven again, how he individually pursues uh, Achan. Verse 13, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord shall uh, take shall come near by households and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. Oh, I get goosebumps. Individual pursuit. So they go through the whole thing. We don't need to go through it. But in verses 16 through like uh, 19, it happens. Tribe, family, household, person. He gets to Achan, the individual God pursues individuals, folks, even after you come into the kingdom of God by making a profession of saving faith in Christ, God is still pursuing you. He wants to see you. He wants to be with you. He wants to walk with you every single day of your life. God is a relational God. Why do you think we were created to be in relationship I'm not saying we're great at it. In fact, many of us struggle at it, but it is part of our makeup. We are creating the image of God to be in relationship because our God in whose image we were created is in relationship. That's one of the lessons of the Trinity. Father, Son and Spirit. Perfect relationship. When the first man and the first woman were created, the scriptures say that God in the person of Jesus Christ used to walk with them in the cool of the evening. And then when they sinned, what does it say? He came looking for them. Not like he didn't know where they were, uh, but for their benefit. Personal. There's more to faith in God. This story teaches us than just nationality or even respectability. Achan seemed to be a very respectable person, right? A member of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Judah. But that wasn't enough to bring him saving faith. So here's one of the lessons we extract from this. Regarding faith and obedience to God, we see what? That a Canaanite harlot can find it and a respectable Israelite can miss it. When it comes to true salvation, faith and obedience to God. Okay, we're bringing this plane into land already. All right. Let's look quickly at some theological principles. What is the truth? Remember our two questions, basic two questions. What is it that God wants us to believe from the text? What is it that God wants us to obey? What is it that God wants me to think, feel, say, do? Because I've been in his word this morning. Well, these are some of the things that we learn. That God sees past superficial externals and he saves unusual people who will put their faith in him. Right? You wouldn't think that someone like Rahab would come into the kingdom of God, but we would think that someone like Achan, surely an upright, uh, respectable person in the community. But God sees past all that. 
we also see what? That deliverance is based on true faith that's demonstrated in actions and not by mere externals such as race or religious uh, traditions or affiliations. You know, I have dear friends, not in California, but in uh, Indiana, a dear friend who is a Presbyterian USA, which is a liberal branch. Uh, And then I have a friend who's a Catholic uh, and particularly my Catholic friend. He told me on several occasions when I try to share the gospel with him, his exact words, I don't really need to worry about that. I'm Catholic. Well, and, and that's what I'm talking about here. Many people think simply their religious affiliation gives them a leg up for eternal life. And this story teaches us that that's not true. Here we have a man named Achan who was in the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, but that didn't guarantee his eternal life. I'm kind of reading into that where he was as his heart was revealed. Perhaps he was a believer in the one true God and he just disobeyed. Uh, Maybe we can't be so dogmatic. James tells us what? That faith without what is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. Doing good deeds doesn't save me. But if I'm truly saved, there's going to be some proof of it in my life. The good deeds I do flow out of my heart that loves God that's been redeemed. The good deeds that come out from my heart is not what saves me. My good deeds are a response of my my thankfulness to God for my salvation. So if we stretch this a little bit, we see what? That mere association with the church rather than true faith in Jesus Christ will not result in salvation. I have my own family members who sometimes they'll get involved at church for little spurts uh, or they'll brush up against the Bible because they just it makes them feel better about themselves or they they somehow. And this may sound kind of strange and I'm not I'm not saying this to be comical. But they even think that because they have a family member who's a minister, that that kind of gives them a a little edge. You know what I mean? Some of you that are in very involved in ministry here and you have unbelieving family members, you know what I mean? Uh, They come to me for advice, for counsel, for help, and I love to give it. But I give them the gospel, give them the gospel, give them. But sometimes it just it just doesn't go through. So many people think that just by having an affiliation with church or religious things, that that somehow will bring them good grace with God. This lesson, this story this morning, once again, teaches us that that just is not true. Because we see what? That God is indeed a God of grace, but judgment does come on those who trivialize God and treat him as if he does not exist. Judgment on the unbeliever, discipline on the believer who tries to trivialize God who just shrugs his shoulders at God's commands or God's word, or really a believer who has strayed or is indifferent or apathetic towards spiritual things is trivializing God. And by the way, God doesn't put up with that, even with his own children. A little bit of application. How do we apply this to the 21st century? Well, here's just one or two things we could do more, but just one or two things. Don't we tend to judge people based on externals? We meet a clean cut middle class American or, you know, or, and we might think to ourselves, wow, what a great Christian that person would be. <laughs> we need to try to get that person into the kingdom. 
But then when we see someone who's involved in some open sinful activity like drugs or gambling, stealing, sexual immorality, sometimes we tend to write those people off and we just assume, wow, that person could never become a Christian. Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we judge people by externals? Don't we shy away from those on the fringe of society and culture because it makes us uncomfortable? Don't we tend to kind of move more toward those within our own comfort circle, right? See, that's judging. That's judging. And this attitude is wrong. Why? Because we've learned this morning that God delights in saving the most unusual people. You don't need to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 6, I put it on your outlines because Paul goes through that long list of sinners. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor homosexual, nor effeminate, nor, uh, you know, that whole thing will inherit the kingdom of God. And then we say, Amen. That's right. Preach it, brother. And we don't read the rest of it. What are the next words? And such were some of you. Such were some of you. By the way, folks, before you came to salvation in Jesus Christ, you were one of the most unusual people. Well, some of you are still unusual. Okay. I'm unusual. In every, in the best way possible. Okay. This is a cool thing. That's not very theological or pastoral. But this is really cool, what we learn from Rahab and Achan and the destruction of Jericho. God wants us to have the same attitude toward people as he does. There are no unlikely candidates for coming to salvation in Christ. There's no such thing as an unlikely candidate for salvation. God can save anyone, anytime, anywhere, anyhow that he wants. And by the way, if you're here today and you're born again, that's you. He saved you anyhow, any way, any time he wanted and he did. So trading places and think of your questions. Take that home with you. What is it that God wants you to believe this morning? And what is it that God wants you to obey? What does God want you to think, feel, say, do in relation to him? Because of what you've seen in his word this morning. You know, Rahab and Achan, they, quote, traded places, didn't they? She got what we thought he would get and vice versa. She lived, was treated like an Israelite. He was an Israelite from the best of the best and he died. Folks, don't let it escape your notice that Christ appeared in order to trade places with sinners on the cross. He traded places with us. So what is it that God's asking you to believe this morning? What is he asking you to obey? Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor that we might be rich. First Peter three eighteen, great verse. It says he switched righteousness for unrighteousness. He didn't become unrighteousness, but he took ours upon him. In other words, he suffered the penalty, Peter says, that you and I personally deserved. He traded places with us. So as you look back maybe this week and and read through these first seven chapters of Joshua, it's very interesting and compare Rahab and Achan. Do you find yourself being more like Rahab 
who heard what God had done and said, and she chose to take God seriously and obey him. Or are you more like Achan? Maybe you're even part of the family of God, but you kind of shrug your shoulders at God. And, you know, we've God's been hitting us hard here on this topic of excellence. This is really what this is about. Again, we saw how Ruth and Boaz were men, a man and a woman of excellence. Rahab is a woman of excellence. Achan is a man who's very sloppy and cavalier and lazy about God and his relationship with God. Just shrugging his shoulders at what God has asked him to do. So you have to make a personal decision today. We've seen that God pursues individuals. So God, the one thing that God is asking you to do today is to take this personally. He's asking you to make a personal decision. Not tomorrow, not later today, but right now. And that's two things. Number one, if you aren't part of the family of God, God's giving you an opportunity right now today. You know, the scriptures say today is the day of salvation. Not 20 minutes from now, not tomorrow, not later this evening, right now. This is your opportunity. And if you're here today and you're already a part of the family of God, and you know that you need to take God more seriously, you need to take your walk with the Lord more seriously, you need to clean it up, get some things in order, And feel free to get with me to get some help or get with someone else in the body that you trust has a good walk with the Lord. You need to do that today. You need to make a decision today, not later, not tonight, right now, this moment. One of the authors I was using said this, the biblical narratives force us to do something with God for better or worse. What will you think he'll say and do in relation to God? And here's some encouragement. The promise of change that we have been given does not guarantee a great velocity. I like that. But a great destination. People sanctify slowly from an earthly perspective. Don't be discouraged that change comes slowly. I like that. We've been promised that we can change, but we've never been promised that it would be at great speed. But sometimes we get frustrated, don't we? Go to 1 Corinthians 15 and we'll close. And I want you to stand with me as you go to 1 Corinthians 15. Change does come quickly for the believer at death because at death everything changes immediately. But in the meantime, we have to be patient. We have to persevere. We have to thank God for the change that does come. If you're here this morning, you're convicted about anything. Try to set for yourself a very small, easy goal. To get started. Don't try to do too much too soon. He says in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or we will not all die. But we will all be what? Changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be what? Changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable And this mortal must put on immortality. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I hope uh, that I have not damaged the text, that I have not misspoken. I pray that you would use me as fallible and weak as a messenger as I am. uh, That your spirit and your word would touch our hearts. 
that, Father, that the times that we come here together on Sunday morning wouldn't be just about going through the routine. Well, we gather together, we do scripture, we meet and greet, we do the offering, we sing, and then we hear a sermon. I just pray that it's more than that, that, that it's personal, uh, that it's transformational, that, that we as your people open our hearts and we say, Heavenly Father, we know you're trying to tell us what, to, what we should believe. You're trying to tell us what we should obey. You want us to be a people in transition, a people of transformation. You want us to be people like Rahab, who, though a, a, a deep, deep sinner, when she heard of you, she took it seriously. And it led to her deliverance. And yet we see Achan, who was already part of your chosen people. And he had a very lazy, cavalier attitude about you. And look what happened to him. It was his end. It was his destruction. So, Father, please convict our hearts uh, to be a people pleasing to you, a people holy to you, a people who are serious about uh, growing spiritually, about uh, seeking after you. We've seen this morning that you pursue us personally, individually, and I hope each person here this morning walks out this door realizing, wow, God is chasing me. God is chasing me. And for some of us, we need to stop running and allow ourselves to be caught, uh, Father, to surrender our lives to you. Even if we already belong to you, sometimes we haven't surrendered everything that we should. Uh, And we talk about it. We wish about it. We dream about it. We fantasize about it, but we never do it. So I just pray this morning. Uh, as we go back over our story of Rahab and Achan, we would uh, be clearly impressed with some things that you want us to do uh, on a personal level because we are in relationship with you. So, Father, thanks for encouraging us today. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we want you to know how much we love you and how much we love your son, Jesus, how much we love your spirit, and how much we love your word. And so now, Father, we're going to go upstairs. We can celebrate. Uh, what you have done in Kyle's life, what you have allowed him to accomplish. Uh, We also celebrate with Robin uh, and even with Amanda. Uh, Thank you, Father, for the blessings and the rewards that you're giving him at this time in his life. We pray for direction uh, over the next phase that you will call him into, but always that he would be seeking to be a man of God, uh, a man who knows and obeys the word. And we pray you'd bless the food that's been prepared. We thank you for those that have served so diligently uh, to get lunch ready for us and that you would just use it as a blessing to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. Hopefully we'll see you upstairs at lunch. Please stay. Even if you didn't bring anything, you don't need anything. Just come up and stay.